Welcome to the episode of Walking with Dante about the first great penitent of purgatory. We had lots of episodes on the great sinners in hell. Now we come to the first great penitent. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in the back verses of Canto 3 of Purgatorio. We're at lines 103 through 120. We will be with this character, Manfred, for two episodes of this podcast. And before we get to the passage, which you can find in my English translation on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com, before we get to this passage, let me say that this is going to be a longish episode. I am sorry about that. I couldn't break this passage into any smaller bits. This is going to become increasingly a problem in Purgatorio and then in Paradiso. Long passages that require a great deal of analysis, historical retrospective, the kind of um, force us to unpack them. This first bit is difficult and thus a bit of a long episode, although not a terribly long passage, just lines 103 through 120. Let me remind you what has happened. Virgil has run away from Cato undignified, at uh, maybe at Cato's reprimand. He and Dante have then been stuck looking at the cliff of purgatory and trying to figure out how they're going to get up this giant rocky face. They find a group of sheep-like souls wandering or walking slowly around the bottom of purgatory. They take up with them, except the souls push Dante and Virgil ahead, signal with the backs of their hands, you go first. Virgil does tell these souls that Dante is in the human body, still embodied and not yet dead. They tell Virgil and Dante to go on, and then one of them turns back. That's where we are at lines 103 through 120 of Canto 3 of Purgatorio. One of them began, whoever you might be, as you go along, turn your face back toward me. Consider whether you ever saw me back over there. I turned toward him and stared hard. He was gorgeous and blonde, with noble features, although one of his eyebrows had been slashed through by a blow. When I courteously replied that I'd never seen his face before, he said, Okay, check this out and he showed me a gash at the top of his chest. Then he smiled and said, I'm Manfred, grandson of the Empress Constance, so I beg you, when you return, to go to my beautiful daughter, mother of the honor of Sicily and Aragon. Tell her the truth, no matter what else is said. After I had my body shredded by two fatal stabs, I, wailing, gave myself back to the one who pardons so willingly. That's the moment that we're going to break Manfred's speech in half. We get to the moment in which he repents at the last minute. But we need to talk through this. Who is Manfred and who are the people mentioned, Constance and his daughter, in this passage? We need to talk about why this passage is so shocking. We need to talk about the pilgrim's reaction in this passage. And then a couple of curious bits that have worried commentators for centuries 
before finally, see, I told you this was going to be a long episode, before finally getting to a structural question about Canto Three of Purgatorio. So we might as well set into our work. First off, this soul identifies himself just flat out as I'm Manfred, and this would be a significant name in Dante's day. Manfred is the illegitimate son of Emperor Frederick II, the Stupermundi, the famed emperor of the Sicilian court, the Holy Roman Emperor of the Sicilian court of great learning, great troubadour poetry, great Islamic thought, that Frederick II. This is his illegitimate son. Manfred was born sometime around 1231 Common Era. Frederick died when Manfred was still fairly young. Frederick dies in 1250. Frederick has a legitimate heir named Conrad IV. Conrad IV takes over reigning Sicily, but there are all kinds of papal intrigues and problems. Conrad IV is a little worried about Manfred and about Manfred's aggressive claims toward the throne despite being illegitimate. So essentially, Conrad IV sidelines Manfred over into a kind of Sicilian backwater and kind of says, you know, this is your territory. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of intrigue going on with Charles of Anjou, with France, with the Papal States, with the Pope trying to take control of what's going on. Conrad IV actually gives his son, Conradin, over to the Pope for the Pope to watch out for him. This will become important in a second. There's power struggles going on. Manfred is making plays for this throne. And then in 1254, four years after Frederick dies, Conrad IV dies of malaria while fighting various battles as the papacy turns on him, as the French forces start to coalesce in central Italy. His young son, Conradin, was born in 1252, so he's only two years old when his father dies, and Manfred now steps up as the regent for Conradin, for his, uh, what is that, his nephew, except it's an illegitimate, he's an illegitimate child, Manfred is, so what is Conradin, he's kind of half-nephew, I don't know. Anyway, Manfred steps up into the throne as the regent for Conradin. If you remember, Conradin is under papal control, and Conradin dies or is rumored to die. That rumor sets Manfred into action. In 1258, Manfred has himself crowned king of Sicily, mostly on the rumor that Conradin had died, although, in fact, he most likely did die. Guelph chroniclers believed that Manfred killed his father, Frederick II, Conrad IV, and Conradin. They accused him of regicide, patricide, fratricide, the whole bit, that he was a really bad character. And we should remember that Frederick, 
and all his clan, including Manfred, are Ghibellines, and that Dante is a Guelph. He stands on the other side of that divide caused by parties that have come down from the Holy Roman Empire into central Italy. Now, remember, the Guelphs are split into white and blacks. Manfred is definitely a Ghibelline. He goes to war in Tuscany and aids the Tuscan Ghibellines and, in fact, is part of their great victory at Monteperti that Ferenata is a part of. We've been at this Battle of Monteperti several times. However, after that, Manfred is killed in a skirmish with the forces of Charles of Anjou, the French forces, at Benevento in 1266, and he is then effectively <laughs> the end of the Holy Roman Empire control of Sicily. Here is who he is standing here in purgatory. Let's talk just a second about who the women are in this passage. It says in the middle of the passage that Manfred smiles and says, I'm Manfred, grandson of the Empress Constance. This is Constance, the daughter of Roger II of Sicily, the wife of Emperor Henry VI of Hohenstaufen, the mother of Frederick II. And he identifies himself as the grandson of this Constance, who we will meet again in comedy. And he then says, when you return, go to my beautiful daughter. And it just so happens that Manfred's daughter is named after his grandmother. And so there are two Constances in the passage. This will play out in the next passage ahead of us particularly. But Manfred's daughter is also named Constance. Ugh, sorry. <laughs> really confusing, right? So he says, go to my beautiful daughter, that is Constance, mother of the honor of Sicily and Aragon. This is Constance, whose mother was Beatrice of Savoy or Beatrice of Savoy, the Manfred's wife. And she has married Pedro the third of Aragon, and we will see her progeny ahead of us in comedy. So we're not done with these people, and it's a good thing we're being introduced to the people swirling around the Hohenstaufen and Holy Roman Empire claims to the throne in Sicily because we're not done with them. Now, let's turn from this to the big surprise. The big surprise is is that Manfred is here at all. <laughs> is that Manfred is here at all. We have heard about Manfred's father in hell with Ferenata. At Inferno 10, line 119, Ferenata indicates who else is down there in that tomb, that burning tomb with him, and he names Frederick II. Manfred's father, despite Manfred's being illegitimate, is himself in hell. And you just think for a moment about a medieval system of thought. Don't think about modern thought of, um, you know, what do I have to do with the sins of my father? No, think about a medieval way of thinking that the children inherit the sins of their fathers. So if Frederick II is in hell in medieval thinking, we would assume his descendants are in hell. And yet, 
here's one who's not. Why is this this surprise? Well, because Manfred was excommunicated by the church. He was excommunicated twice, in fact, once by Alexander IV in 1258 and once by Urban IV, Pope Urban IV, in 1261. Wait a minute. How can you be excommunicated and end up in the redeemed part of the afterlife? Well, he says, I, wailing, gave myself back to the one who pardons so willingly. But does that mean, then, that the church's power is not absolute? We'll talk much more about this in the next episode of this podcast. Nobody in Dante's day would have predicted that Manfred would end up in the redeemed part of the afterlife. He's a notorious libertine. He ran a very fashionable court with troubadour poetry. He allowed Islamic settlements to continue in Sicily, as did his father. There is no reason why he should be here, and no one in Dante's day would have put him in the redeemed part of the afterlife except for Dante. Let's turn to the pilgrim's reaction to this guy. The passage starts, one of them began, and now we know that's Manfred, whoever you might be, as you go along, turn your face back toward me, consider whether you ever saw me back over there, back in the land of the living. I turned toward him and stared hard. He was gorgeous and blonde. Now, notice how loaded up this is. Gorgeous and blonde with noble features, although one of his eyebrows had been slashed through by a blow. And we assume that Manfred is that sheep that had stepped out of the fold in the simile and had an honorable gait, but seemed humbled. We assume that soul who is likened to that sheep in the earlier simile is Manfred. Why does Manfred turn around and say to Dante, do you know who I am? After all, Manfred dies at least when Dante is an infant, Dante would have had no way to see Manfred. There's no Instagram, no TikTok. There's no way to see Manfred or a picture of Manfred. Why does Manfred somehow think that Dante recognizes him? Let me give you a couple answers to this. Romantic commentators wanted Dante to look old for his age, as if somehow this guy walking across the known universe has a very old, sagey, wise philosopher look about him. And romantic commentators used this verse in Purgatorio to say, oh, the pilgrim looks very old for his age, clearly because he's so wise and so, so uh, you know, uh, full of knowledge. I don't buy that in the least. More modern commentators have somehow focused on fame and assumed that Manfred is like a lot of famous people. Manfred just assumes that you know who Manfred is. Long ago, Bruce and I did cooking classes for a charity for homeless people in Manhattan. And we were always auctioned off at the annual auction of this charity to do a cooking class in someone's home. 
And to tell you the long story of it, we got auctioned off to a very fancy apartment, <laughs> a guy who owned a very fancy apartment. And we did a cooking class in his home. And one of the people invited to this dinner was Bette Midler. And so we, I taught Bette Midler how to roll gnocchi in this guy's kitchen. Okay, fine enough. But when I met Bette Midler that night, I stuck out my hand and said, hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. And she shook my hand and said, hi, nice to meet you. And I always thought, isn't it interesting that she didn't say, hi, I'm Bette. She assumed I knew who she was. I did know who she was. But she assumed it. And so a lot of modern commentators think that the same thing is going on here, that Manfred is a famous, well-established person, and that he would just assume that anybody knows who he is. I think that that interpretation is a little too rooted in the modern world of social media and fame and Hollywood icons. I don't really see that here. I tend to see this that Manfred buys Virgil's story, that this is a living soul. And so Manfred hopes for a living soul because he already says, go back and tell my daughter the truth. He needs a living soul to clear up his name with his daughter Constance. And as we will see, he needs a living soul to pray for him because praying for him will help him get farther up on the mountain of purgatory. I assume that Manfred turns around, takes on face value Virgil's story that this is a guy in his body and thinks, oh, gosh, I hope this guy knows who I am, because if he knows who I am, then maybe he'll pray for me and maybe he will search out my daughter and tell her the truth about where I am in the afterlife, because <laughs> everybody else thinks I'm burning up in hell. Let's go on in the passage. Dante courteously replies, and we assume he uses the you formal because of the way he talks. I courteously replied that I'd never seen his face before. And then Manfred says, okay, check this out. And he opens up, I guess, his shirt. Maybe he's wearing a shirt and reveals a gash at the top of his chest. And then it's this curious line that has worried commentators. Then he smiled and said, I'm Manfred. It's that smile. Why did Manfred smile? Let me give you a series of answers here. Is he bemused that he's talking to an underling, somebody who would definitely be below him in a courtly world? And now in this part of the afterlife, Manfred is humbled, and so he has to bring himself down, and so he's kind of bemused by this whole thing that's going on. Is he whimsical? Like, oh, wow, I found somebody who I can actually plead with to go tell my story. <laughs> I'm not burning up. Is he being kind? Does he turn back to the pilgrim and smile because this is part of the overall kindness of the redeemed in the afterlife? Maybe. One of the ways I like to think about this is that he is modeling what Dante hopes the reader's response is. Remember, in Dante's day, nobody would think Manfred was anywhere near any redeemed part of the afterlife. He's been excommunicated twice, known libertine, <laughs> fought with the Ghibellines, the Guelph chroniclers all hate him. Him, all accuse him of being a homicidal maniac. I sometimes think that he smiles because this is what Dante wants the reader to do. Oh, Manfred, he's here. Or how about this as a kind of subpoint, a corollary to that? Maybe this smile mitigates the reader's response. <laughs> I mean, Dante is a gelf. 
after all. And maybe Dante expects me to go, no way, not Manfred. Are you kidding? This smile paves the way, smooths it over so that then I can accept that this is Manfred because this is daring stuff on Dante's part. Now let's talk a little bit about these wounds. So we find out in the passage that Manfred has one of his eyebrows slashed through with a blow, and then he's got this gash at the top of his chest. What is going on with these wounds? We have rarely seen souls gashed up in any way with one exception, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But we have rarely seen souls gashed up. We've seen souls who have fallen in battle in Inferno, and we will see souls ahead of us who have fallen in battle, but they don't seem to have their wounds. What's going on here? A lot of commentators connect this with Christ and turn Manfred into a Christ figure. After all, after the resurrection in the New Testament stories, Jesus shows the nail prints in his hands, the wound in his side, to his disciples. If that's the case, then, wow, Dante is really being daring, making Manfred a Christ figure. It is true that Augustine made the claim that the martyrs would have their wounds in the afterlife because those are their marks of honor. So the martyrs would still be wounded in the afterlife, just as the notion is that Jesus holds the nail prints in his hand and the gash in his side even up in heaven, even in his embodied form, clear into eternity. So these are marks of honor. But again, this is all linking Manfred to martyrs and to Jesus that no one except Dante would do. It's also hard not to think of the schismatics of Muhammad and Ali. They were marked up. The demon hacked the schismatics apart. And maybe there is a way that Manfred is linked to Muhammad and Ali. After all, Manfred continued his father's policy of allowing Islamic scholars poets and settlers into his court and into settlements in Sicily. So maybe Dante is daring us to make a connection. This guy is partially schismatic, but saved in the way that others of the schismatics are not. It's an interesting read. There are very few commentators who take that read. I tend to more and more lean onto it because I think it's just wildly daring to link up Manfred with Muhammad Ali because he was linked with Islamic scholars in his own life and because Islam is seen as a schism rather than a completely different religion by Dante. So this is a the redeemed or a being redeemed schismatic. We also have to note that there is so much about the body in Canto 3. Virgil's body has been taken from its original place to another place. Dante's shocked that he's still in a body when he sees his shadow. Now we have more about Manfred's wounds out of the body. This is not a linear progression of thought. We're not at a rational, neoclassical, linear thought where you go, you know, the body is this, therefore the body is this, therefore the body is this. This is more medieval, analogical thought by analogy, by coincidence, by comparison, by juxtaposition. 
juxtaposition, but we do have various concepts of the body running around Canto Three. Virgil's body moved from its place, as I said, Dante's surprised at his body, and now an emphasis on Manfred's physical body, although he's not bodied. He's a spirit, but he carries the marks of the body into the spirit world with him. Is this the big difference? Virgil is transparent, Dante is solid, and Manfred is transparent, we suppose, but transparent with gashes, with scars from his body, kind of a tertium quid, a third place, an intermediate spot? Are we being asked to think through the body in this way? Maybe. An interesting idea, and not one that I have a full answer to. (laughs) You know how I love to do. I love to throw the soup in your lap, as we've already discussed, so I'm going to throw it in your lap and let you think about it, because there's actually no right answer, so long as you don't jump out from the text into some other place, sit here and think about what Dante may be doing with the body in Canto Three. And finally, there is a poetic structural note that I have to make. Now, let me just back up and say that I was trained, as you probably know, as a literary structuralist. I was trained to see pieces of literature as architecture. So I just want to talk for a minute about the structure of what's happened in Canto Three. If we go all the way back to when they first see the souls, they first see this flock of sheep-like souls, very timid, one steps forward and the others kind of do without knowing why. Remember that? And Virgil addresses them. Virgil, if you remember, flatters them. And there's a very fancy rhetorical term for what Virgil does. Captatio benevolentiae. That is a way that you gain someone's uh, attention. You get something out of them because you first flatter them. It's a very old rhetorical structure. And then if you remember, Virgil ends at that aphorism about losing time and knowing the most and all that. Those are two very old classical rhetorical forms. We turn from that to Dante's pastoral simile of the sheep in the flock, and then we turn from that to Manfred. Now, just think about that structurally. Old school rhetorical forms, new style writing in the troubadour tradition that includes pastoral elements and then a surprise figure, Manfred. Is there a way that this structure is actually working in a direction? In other words, the old school rhetoric gives way to the new poetry, which is more pastoral, more physical, less rhetorical tropes, and therefore the surprise of somebody who shouldn't be here. The new poetry paves the way for the surprise, or the new poetry leads us into a voice we didn't expect. I think that may be structurally there. Virgil's musty old rhetoric, the beautiful simile of the sheep, and then this surprise voice. Manfred, I think it makes the passage in Canto Three structurally incredibly interesting, just uh, you can you can kind of sit in it for a long time and think this through about what Dante thinks he's doing with his poetry. 
I'm not going to read this passage. I'm going to read it at the end of the next episode when we get all the way through Manfred's speech to the back of Canto 3. So let's save it for then and do it all in one go. It is a surprising and shocking passage full of curiosities, <laughs> which you know I love. Will you please consider rating this podcast? Would you please consider writing a review? Even great podcasts would do wonders for me. I am otherwise completely unsupported except for your footsteps along mine. And let me just say again and again and again, I appreciate those footsteps. Thanks for being part of this journey with me as we slow walk through Dante's poem. And by slow walking, we can see structural oddities. You know, we can't do this if we were going fast in a class. We've got to slow walk to watch how this goes on. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.